Hello, everyone. It's John Byrne with Poets and Quants. You are in the right spot for Business Casual, our weekly podcast, with my co-host, Maria Wickvilla, the founder of Applicant Lab and the most famous MBA ever to graduate from the Harvard Business School, and Caroline D'Arty Edwards, the most famous graduate from NCOD, as well as the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions and the former director of admissions at NCOD, of course. Well, <laughs> we just finished two days of the Center Court MBA Festival with my partner, Matt Simons. We had a terrific time. We broke some news. Most of the schools that uh, attended the event told us that their applications are up in double digits. The real wow factor was Indiana Kelly. Their MBA applications so far this year are up 70%. A lot of that is driven by international applicants who appear to be returning into the U.S. market. International applicants up 82% out of the total 70 overall. And, you know, you, if you've been listening to Business Casual, you know that Maria, Caroline, and I have all been predicting that this is going to be one of the most competitive admission seasons ever. And that seems to be certainly the case. I think there are a few schools where just because of their scheduling, you know, they may have a different schedule where they start in January or they may be in Europe and they pull heavily from outside their country and travel restrictions are still looming in many places in the world. And that's still holding back some applicants. But for many of the European U.S. schools, things are looking pretty rich. Now, one of the questions that we asked everyone, is it too late? In other words, in this competitive admission season, is it too late to apply now? Maria, you don't think it's too late. I was actually just going to say, yeah, I think it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> it may be too I, late to start from scratch. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, you know, applying to business school is always a lot more work than people think it's going to be. I think if you're an international student, I do think that right now it might be a little bit tricky because even if you do apply in the upcoming round three, in addition to dealing with the insane amounts of competition that we are seeing, you might also have visa issues. So even if you do get accepted, you know, who knows what the new school year will look like in terms of, you know, will you have to have both vaccine shots in order to come into the country? And so I think squaring all of that away is normally difficult for international students in particular in round three, but I think this year it'll be, it'll be an added twist. So I think for those folks, it, I, I would probably urge them to wait until round one of next year. And then for domestic candidates, you know, I can't help but think that this year it's an embarrassment of riches for the schools. And so normally round three is used to, you know, and Caroline can talk more about this as a former admissions director, but it's used to sort of round out the class and fill up, you know, fill out the class and make it more well-rounded. I can't imagine that that's a, that's a problem this year. I mean, if you have 72%, 82%, 70% more applicants, you're probably doing okay in terms of like, are, are we going to have enough people show up come fall? Exactly. Now, now, one one interesting insight from an admissions director of one of the on the on one of the panels, I forget who it was, was making the point that because people have more time during COVID and they're basically stuck at home, he thought that applicants were applying to more schools than they would have in the past, and that's one of the reasons why so many schools are experiencing double digit increases. So, it may very well be that yes. 
while there are a lot more applicants, there may be a lot of people applying to more schools than they had in the past, given the pandemic. And so ultimately, you can only go to one school, right? No matter how many schools you're accepted at. So it may not be as daunting for many people as, as we think it can be. And it might also just be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so far as we've all been saying all year, it's going to be the most competitive year ever. I'm sure we've all been telling our clients it's going to be the most, you know, you better, you better, you know, spread out that risk. So, I mean, that's also, I think it might be sort of a cycle. Yeah, I think there's something to that. You're right, because we've been saying this and reporting it, uh, poets and quants, which means that people are going to be hedging their bets. Caroline, what's your take on it? You think people are applying to more schools this season? Yes, for sure. And I agree. It's I think it's both factors. It's that people have more spare time on their hands if they're not commuting and so on, and a bit more time to think about and, and research other programs beyond perhaps the obvious ones that they would have otherwise only applied to. And everybody knows that it's it's a more competitive season. And as Maria said, we've all been telling our clients ad infinitum, you know, spread your spread your risk, spread your bets and and apply to more schools. It just makes sense right now if you do really want to go to business school, you know, within the next 12 months. As we've said, you know, round three can be very tough. I would just put in a plug for INSEAD as the round one deadline is approaching in March for the January intake. So it's also a great time to consider some of those international programs uh, as well. If you're thinking that the, your chances may be expiring to, to attend a U.S. program in the fall. That's true. And because NCIAT has two intakes, there's much more flexibility to just go with the flow and, and get in and not have to wait a whole full year cycle. Yeah, there's there's eight deadlines a year. So we're never far away from the next deadline. So So yes, it's very flexible. That must have meant that you never had a break. <laughs> it's true. You know, I think most admission officials, they kind of love the idea that, okay, after, after they get the basic acceptances and rejections done on round two, it's pretty easy coasting until round one yeah. in September and October. Well, we, we structure things a bit differently because a lot of the U.S. schools um, the same people are um, reading files and then going on the road and doing all of the information sessions and fairs and events and so on. Uh, and so I actually had separate teams to do that. And there was some crossover, but largely, you know, we had a, a separate team of people who would do all of the events and travel around the world and another team of people who were dedicated to admissions because, as you said, you know, it was a it was an ongoing constant cycle. Yes. Uh, the other thing that came up during center court was the whole issue of waivers of GMATs and GREs. You know, we've reported that two thirds of the top 100 ranked U.S. schools are now either test optional or granting, actively promoting the granting of waivers. But people made clear, you know, hey, look, we're, we're not just handing these out. It's not affecting the quality of the enrolled class of the people who are getting accepted because we're we're putting much more heavier emphasis on your undergraduate transcript mm. on your work experience and whether you've been exposed to quant work in your job whether or not you have a master's degree or a stem degree or a terminal degree so you know if you don't meet this other criteria they're not going to hand you a waiver essentially 
And that sort of came through loud and clear, including from MIT Sloan, you know, which is one of the more prominent schools. And I think the only M7 school that is actively promoting the idea of, of uh, GMAT and GRE waivers. Yeah. I, I mean, I spoke yeah. to some candidates who got very excited about the waivers and thought, oh, well, now it's going to be much easier to get in. But it's not, unfortunately. It doesn't mean that they're lowering the bar academically. And in fact, you know, you have to have even stronger academic credentials, I think, to be able to get into a school like MIT if you haven't taken the GMAT or the GRE. Yeah. And Dawn Levinson, who was on one of my panels from MIT Sloan, really put a lot of emphasis on the one recommendation letter that they require. Most schools require two. They only require one. But it seemed to me, and she confirmed, that they're putting much more weight on that one recommendation letter if you don't have a GMAT or GRE score to report. Mm. They just feel they want to rely on that and these other elements of the application to a great a greater extent than they would have in the past mm. if they don't have a standardized test score, which I get, particularly at a school like MIT, which has a pretty quanti MBA program. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. The other thing that came out of this is the fact that, you know, things are pretty uncertain still, you know. <laughs> We would have thought that by now there'd be a greater degree of certainty on both sides, among applicants and incoming students and the schools. But I think overall, looking at the world, the the rollout of the vaccines has been slower than anticipated. In the U.S., things are picking up, but in many other parts of the world, they're not. And so what fall will look like is, you know, still quite uncertain. There could be a continuation of hybrid is the most likely outcome with more in-person stuff, but still hybrid. And the schools, uh, given the current travel restrictions, the potential for these mutants to spread, and <laughs> the, the uncertainty for the schools is equal, if not more so, because, again, as they did last time, they had crazy yield issues with uh, a lot of people asking for deferments. As everyone knows, Harvard actually enrolled the class that was about 25% less than it normally is, and now they're going to enroll a larger class. But I'm imagining that with the uncertainty in the fall, there's going to be more people on wait lists, more people accepted in anticipation that more will not come. So that this and this addresses the competitive admission season on some level, because if schools have to accept more people and put more people on wait lists, that brings their acceptance rates up, even in the fact of higher volume of applications across the board. So maybe maybe it won't be as scary as we've made it. (laughs) It's true. I wonder I wonder, though, some of the schools are going to start taking more assertive steps towards protecting that yield. For example, some schools pre-COVID, I believe, for example, Kellogg would be reaching out to people before making them an offer and not as their official interview, but sort of a, hey, I'm calling from admissions at Kellogg and how's your how's your process going? And, you know, sort of trying to hint around, are you going to come if we give you an offer? And I wonder if some of the schools, you know, because, yeah, if your yield is going to go from, say, 60 percent down to 25 percent. You might, I mean, do you just accept three times? Do you accept a ton more people or how do you manage that? Caroline, what would you, well, not to put you on the spot, Caroline, but what would you do if you were ahead of admissions right now? Oh, yes, schools are concerned about yield and it's a metric that um, they they monitor very carefully. 
So it, it you know, it, it's definitely something that where they're going to be investing increased efforts, I think, in, in sort of building the relationship with candidates and making sure that, you know, if it's especially when they get to interview stage and therefore they're likely, you know, there's a very good chance that they could be admitted with, with that pool of candidates, that they have a very strong relationship, that they're proactive in, in communicating with a candidate and, you know, they do what they can to make sure that if they are admitted, that they that they will join the program but you know regardless i think there is there is just so much uncertainty for everyone right now and and the schools have to be somewhat you know empathetic to that especially with with people who would need to travel internationally so whilst they may not be as flexible as they were last year with with granting deferrals some of the schools you know were were very flexible some were less so i think that you know they might not be as flexible this year given that you know, last year, all of this was very unexpected, right? And some people had applied to business school and had been admitted and, and then suddenly the pandemic hit, right? And so the whole ball game changed. Whereas if you're applying now, it's not a new thing, right? So, so it's kind of buyer beware if you're getting into this process at this stage, you know that, that it's an uncertain context. And so I think the schools may be a little bit less flexible and understanding than they were you know, in, in the sort of summer of last year when candidates were sort of facing an unprecedented challenge and and hadn't, of course, no one had anticipated it this year. We we are they're entering the process with our eyes wide open. Yeah, that's really true. And if you look at what's going on right now, you know, most schools are of course in hybrid format. Harvard, which in November went totally online, their spring semester is now back to hybrid. Since January 1, they've had over 80 positive cases of COVID, something like 63, 65 students to rest faculty and staff since January alone. But then, you know, you look at the positivity rate and it's very low, even though, you know, wow, 80 people with positive COVID at Harvard Business School within since January 1st. You think that's a lot, but it really isn't when you look at the positivity rate. And, and at Yale, the Yale Daily News reported today, for example, that uh, at School of Management, more and more of the sessions are in person. There's a hybrid format, but it turns out some people don't want to take the chance to go. And so it's opened the doors for others to, to attend the class. And they have like an A-B format where half the students are able to attend class and half are watching it on Zoom. But on those alternate days when some students just don't want to go because they they're have some safety concerns, they're opening those uh, seats up to more students. So, you know, this, I think the schools generally have done a pretty darn good job and come uh, fall, even though there is this uncertainty, I think it'll be closer to normal if, but it won't be normal (laughs) Uh, because it really can't be, unfortunately. And and that, that also may cause some people to want to defer if they get admitted again, you know? It'd be funny if you deferred last year because you're like, this will all be over by next year. Yes. It's going to be completely back to normal and then womp, womp. <laughs> uh, exactly. You know, this is the other thing with the vaccines and getting closer to herd immunity. You think that, my goodness, It'll be all gone. But we may have slayed a dragon only to find another dragon behind it. I hope that's not true. I yeah. really do. 
but it, it is possible. Yeah. Who knows yeah. what the future holds? Now, now tell me what your folks are experiencing, your candidates, the people who use your services. Do you find that more of them are getting on wait lists? Do you find that fewer of them are getting interviewed? From that perspective, how are you seeing this admission season so far? So my impression that round one was a little bit easier than round two. I think I feel like the acceptance rate at the top schools has gone down slightly in round two. And I think there has been a lot of waitlisting in round one. Those are my impressions so far. What about you, Maria? Yeah, same. I think especially with with round one, because there was so much uncertainty around what are we even going to see in round two? I think a lot of the schools just sort of punted in a way like, okay, well, (laughs) we've already got 15 product managers from Uber maybe we'll get more in round two. So let's just, instead of deciding now, let's just wait until round two where we'll have that that greater uh, viewpoint of the overall pool. So more people on the wait list from round one, but also more people getting off of the wait list from round one and now getting uh-huh. interviewed in round two, uh, uh-huh. because I think if they were actually using the wait list a little bit more aggressively. I also, I feel like there's been a delay. So for some of the schools who have more rolling uh, interview practices where, you know, there's not the date that we announce the interviews, but it's ongoing. I think there have been some delays. If, uh, you know, if they really are dealing with 30, 50, 70% increases, I think it's just taking a longer time to get through all of those applications. So I'm also seeing interview invites coming out a little bit later than I would have expected, which is a good thing, but it's stressful while people are waiting. Yeah, exactly. I always prefer schools that just give you a date. They tell you when they're going to notify you uh, about interviews and the first releases. And then they tell you exactly when all the acceptances will go out and the final rejections. I just think, you know, that certainty of knowing when it's going to happen relieves a lot of anxiety. People are still going to be anxious. Yeah, people are still going to be anxious and crazy. But, you know, when you look at the community boards out there on the Internet, you see how nuts so people are about, oh, my God, did you get an invite? Oh, did you get called? Did you get the email? You know, I mean, it's kind of crazy. I submitted my application at 11.52 a.m. on the deadline date, Did you, you know, and you submitted yours at 11.54 a.m. And, you know, I'm left handed and you are, too. But why did you get an invite? It's crazy. It's really nuts. Also, it, it always annoys me. I, mean, I, I don't know why. Met, now, Caroline, you may have an, a, a, you know, a, a better understanding of this than I do. But why doesn't Harvard Business School tell us, okay, our round one is done and applications were blank. We got this many. I mean, what's the big deal? Or now that round two is done, they know how many applications they receive. Why don't they just report it? Why does it have to be such a big, mysterious secret? I mean, what's the big deal about it? So why don't they release round numbers round by round rather than this class by class? Yeah, given the intensity of interest and given how obsessive people are, just just give people a bone. Say, hey, you know, uh, we, we want to let you know that everyone's getting the same consideration they always would, but applications are up 25%, Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very good question. I mean, I wonder if they're concerned it could put people off, right? So if they say, okay, applications were up 25% in round one, a bunch of people may think, oh God, you know, now is not the right time to apply. So I should just wait. And then their yeah. applications could drop or people, or people, it just may deter people, right? There's, there's a, 
there's a double-edged sword to giving out that kind of information. Um, it can sound good in that, you know, wow, we're so popular and everyone wants to come here now. That's but true. that can also put some people off who actually might be amazing candidates. And That's um, true. But let's say, okay, so Harvard's finished with round two. They know exactly the number of applications they receive. If you're in the mainstream pool, you can't apply until the fall of this year now for the following intake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have two plus two applicants, uh, that deadline coming up. But why not say, okay, for this season, we had X number of uh, applications. I don't see any harm in that. And it gives me another story to write, for God's sake. Yeah, well, I was I was just going to say, if they do it, if they did it round by round, as Caroline suggested, if they had a great round one and then nobody applied in round two because they were so freaked out, then the overall number might go down. And then your headline would be this school, you know, yeah, that's record true. year. Why did no one Appli- apply to this school? Applications <laughs> plunge. What a disaster. They're, they're, yeah, exactly. So there, uh, I think that's part of it. I, I, I think in terms of, you know, to, to the extent that giving out that information might either psych people out negatively or it might make them overconfident in case the number is a low one. You know, interviews are still going on for a number of the schools and maybe True. it's just best to walk in and not know one way or the other and just do that's, your best and not let it impact you. That's probably true. I want more information as opposed to less information, but I, I, I totally get it. You know, another pet peeve of mine in terms of uh, information that schools uh, release is these 80 percentile GMAT and GRE scores. Why not give the full range? Because you are actively discouraging candidates from applying to your program by not showing them the full range of GMATs and GREs in that accepted class or that enrolled class. Now, Harvard and Stanford give the lowest number, but most schools won't do it. And I I just don't, I don't entirely get it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they could give both numbers. I think partly it's that they don't want uh, everyone to think, oh, I've got a 600 and I can get into MIT. So I'm fine. I'm done. I've got my 600. Somebody else got in with a 600. <laughs> and therefore, it's doable. And, and I'm good enough. If they could get in with this, I can get in with this. So I think that, you know, the 80% range is much more representative. And people on the extremes probably have, um, you know, on the, on the lower range are going to have something else exceptional in their profile, but, but it can mislead candidates to think that it's an, it's good enough to get 600 and therefore I can get into this, this amazing school. Um, yeah, but Caroline, yeah. from your own experience, don't you, don't you tend to find instead of that attitude, the attitude that, oh my God, I'm 10 points below the class average. I don't have a chance in hell. Uh, I'm done for. Yeah, you get both. <laughs> and I think that's why Harvard and Stanford do give that full range. Yeah. Because they don't want people to be put off by the 80% range or by the average. And yeah, I, uh, yes, I, people do get put off by by the averages and think, okay, well, the average is seven thirty, and I've got seven ten. Maybe I'm not competitive. And we um, know when 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 someone gets in the Harvard Business School with a five ninety or a six ten, and it, this has happened in recent years. You know, the guy who probably was on an NFL team uh, was a star quarterback or star or linebacker or something. You know, I mean, these are anomalies, extraordinary people who've achieved great things that aren't recognized in a simple standardized test score. Yes. 
Yeah. And it, it's tricky for the schools because they want people to make the effort and take the standardized test seriously. If they're going to do it and, you know, do your best, show what you're capable of, but they don't want people to get too hung up on it and, and rule themselves out and not apply if they don't quite get that, you know, amazing GMAT score. So, so it is, it is a tricky one for schools to manage because they're trying to send different messages. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, there's no doubt about that. And, and Kirsten Moss at uh, Stanford a couple of years ago at Center Court openly acknowledged that she was almost embarrassed by the uh, average uh, GMAT score of the class because she is really concerned that it discourages so many people from even applying to the school. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure that is the case. Yeah. So Maria, what's the one thing you want to have happen this week for you? Okay. I don't, well, I, I can tell you for next week, I don't want these oddball questions thrown at me in the middle of the podcast recording that I am not ready for. Um, I mean, in terms of, in terms of like work, I think, you know, we're, I'm, I'm doing some mock interviews this week and I'm hoping that I can help folks in that. And just, I think we're, I think a lot of us in this field are just trying to get past that round two. And I think a lot of us are also hoping, well, I'm certainly hoping that this year's round three is not like last year's round three. We're you know, the chaos of the yes. pandemic being thrown upon us yeah, opened up this be. whole can of worms for an extended right. round three. And so, you know, very few of us actually got any sort of time off at all. Like the normal, right. the normal round three lull did not and, exist. And we, and we did a really good podcast on what to expect in a admissions interview, which people should refer to if they're about to walk into one. And I, and I guess over the next three weeks, two weeks, uh, Harvard is doing most of its admission interviews for round two, right? Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm seeing on my side, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Caroline, what do you wish was going to happen next week? Well, a vaccine would be nice. <laughs> oh, that's, that's happening that's for so, me next week. That's oh, good for you. I'm so pleased for you, John. Well, uh, Maria and I have to wait a little bit longer, I think. Yes. Um, no, I'm I mean, a little foggy. It's, <laughs> but a young at heart. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with Maria that it's um, you know, it hopefully it'll be a bit more of a stable year this year and a little bit more predictability would be nice because it was such a roller coaster last year. And you know, things just changed day by day last year. I mean, it was totally nuts, right? In the in the spring and the summer, and the rules were changing and policies were changing, and it was, you know. It was very hard and to keep track, and it was very hard for candidates to know what to do. So I think you know a, a little bit more certainty and predictability is is very welcome this year. Yeah, definitely true. And you're right. I'm uh, looking forward to my second Moderna vaccine Yay. week from Friday, and I'm hoping that whatever the side effects are, they won't be too crazy. I hear You're people get yeah. people get like LSD type dreams. Oh, um, kind really of freaky. Weird dreams where they imagine themselves to be in places that they're not. Of course, fevers, chills, sweats, uh, usual <laughs> flu symptoms. Um, I'm reserving a spot in my bed for 36 hours after my shot. <laughs> with Kate's Tyl- not kicking you out. With Tylenol close by my side. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I look forward to hearing about it in a couple of weeks. How it Absolutely. It gives, it gives you a chance to binge some new shows on Netflix, John. Oh, <laughs> I am. 
Uh, oh, give what's a recommend? It's been a while. I was just going to say it's been a while since you've given us a Netflix recommendation. <laughs> There's a British show uh, that okay. I started watching only Must last night. Um, yes, of course. Called, then it's superior. It's called Behind Her Eyes. And it's about a psychiatrist who moves to central London with his wife. His wife is not quite right. She had been in a psychiatric institution after her parents died in a house fire. And um, he begins an affair with his secretary. And it's a very tricky show. Yeah. It's apparently based on a book that was extremely popular, sold nearly a million copies by a British author who actually had, had started out uh, being a horror writer. This I get from the interview she did with The Guardian, which is I read religiously. But it's, uh, it's a fun little distraction right now. <laughs> Good. It's great. Behind her eyes. Okay. I'll check it out. Anyway. Hey, thanks, everybody. And good luck to you on your journey to business school. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Caroline. As always, pleasure to hear you. And, you know, you don't know that we see each other when we uh, do these podcasts. And I can't believe, you know, the fact that Caroline and Maria always dress up for them. You know, it's like they bring out their best shirt. They wear out their, they bring out their <laughs> best You wear it so well. Wear. Yes. yes now, here no, I, I am in a dirty t-shirt and I should I be. In it's your Louis Vuitton sweatshirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What Did I say sweatshirt? I meant my ball gown. <laughs> It's underneath a sweatshirt. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. You've been listening to our business casual, and we've been very casual on this podcast, folks. <laughs> See you next week.